Reading from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Let's pause there and pray and ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word. And we just ask you, Lord, to give our eyes and our hearts and our thoughts a glimpse, just a glimpse of how great you are and how great you are in providing us with Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The heavens declare the glory of God. One of the ways the heavens declares the glory of God is by its size, its mind-boggling size and scope. As we just saw in that video, and I, just, I thought that was kind of a, a, a nice little introduction to the size that we're dealing with when we talk about the universe. The Milky Way, which is our little galaxy, is 100,000 light years from one end to the other, or 588 quadrillion miles. The galaxy closest to us, the Andromeda, is 2.4 million light years away. And the furthest galaxy that we can see through the Hubble Space Telescope is 13.4 billion light years away. Now, we throw out those numbers, but our minds cannot comprehend what we're talking about with the size and with the scope of the universe. And so when we consider the, the mind-boggling size, the billions of galaxies, the quadrillion stars and planets and, in the universe, I totally get why some people say it's arrogant for us to think that we're the only life in the universe, that, that Earth is the only planet that has life. It's, it's arrogant. It's, it's, it seems ridiculous to think that we are here alone. And surely if there's life on this planet, there must be life on other planets too, in other galaxies. And someone, if they believe in God, might say, if God created all this, doesn't it seem rather wasteful for him to create so much for so little, for one little planet in one, with one little star, one little solar system? Wouldn't it be wasteful of him to create such a vast universe just for us? Now, listen, I don't know, you know, if God created life on other planets. The Bible is silent on that. But let me say this. It would be totally wasteful, it would be totally wasteful and arrogant if the grandeur and the size and the scope of the universe was meant to say something about us. But it's not. It's about God. 
The heavens declare the glory of God. When we look up into the night sky and we see, you know, stars and we see the moon and we see the planets, or if we look through the Hubble telescope and we see millions and billions of galaxies, all of that declares something about God. It's not saying something about us. It's declaring something about God. The heavens are one way that God speaks to us. One of the things the Bible tells us is that God is a communicating God. He is a God who loves to speak. He loves to communicate. It's one of the ways that we're created in the image of God, is that he communicates, and we do as well. We love to speak and communicate as well. In fact, communication is one of the deep and most important building blocks to relationship. Sharing your heart, sharing your thoughts, sharing moments together, laughing together, talking, sometimes even disagreeing, interacting, is the way that relationships go strong. And what this tells us is that God is a relational God. He wants relationship. He's a communicating God. And one of the ways he does is through the heavens and through his creation. So I want us to consider briefly, what is God saying? What is God saying? And the first thing I want us to look at is that God is speaks, God speaks a general revelation about himself through creation. Verses 1 through 6 details that. Listen again to the first four verses of Psalm 19, and I want you to listen to the communication that's going on here. Beginning of verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. God loves to reveal himself and to reveal something about himself in the heavens, in all of creation. We look at his creation and we see God, something about God. In fact, Paul writes that in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So in all of this creation, God, who God is, is clearly seen. And I want to look at just a few aspects of that. Let me, let me just say this really quickly. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds. But when we consider who God is and what the Bible says, God is not his creation. Okay? If you hear somebody teach that God is his creation, you need to run. But also, God is not in all his creation. That's, uh, God is his creation is pantheism. God is in all his creation is panotheism. And the Bible makes it very clear. God is not in his creation. We don't see God uh, like God isn't in that flower. God isn't in that tree. God is separate from his creation. He is holy. He is separate. He is other than his creation. But 
We see his fingerprints all throughout creation. We see something about who God is in his creation. And I want us to consider just a few things. These are general revelations. These are not specific. We'll get to that. First of all, creation speaks of God's glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. And glory is a Hebrew word that means weight or honor. But those words don't really capture the full meaning. When we look at the universe, it declares the weight, the honor, the glory of God. One of the glorious things it declares right away, we see just even in that video, which only took us out to the edges of our Milky Way, which is such a small part of the universe. We see that God is infinite in all his attributes. How do we see that? We see that because God could have created a universe that simply ended at the edges of our solar system. We haven't even gotten there. Maybe there's some, I don't know, did we send up some space shot that's like at the end of Pluto or something like that? There's something that's out there, but it's taken all this time just to get that far out. If, if I'd feel like I had enough room to live if, if all we had was this solar system and our planet and all that, like, but God, we'd still see God is great. God is massive. Or God could have just put the edges. He could have, he could have put the borders around the Milky Way. Just to, and how massive is that? We'll never get anywhere near the end of that. And we'd see that God is great and God is glorious. But God created this universe that the edges of which seem to us the closest thing to infinity that can be known or considered. And it shows us the, the nearly infinite size, at least from our perspective of the universe, declares that the creator is an infinite God. The cause is always greater than the effect. It is God, his power, that created the power of a quadrillion stars. It didn't even break a sweat. It is his wisdom that set a medium-sized star in the middle of a solar system, and then with wisdom and craftsmanship measured exact distances to hang a planet so that that planet would be the perfect environment for life. You can't get it wrong by a few million miles either direction. The fine-tuning of our universe is glory to behold, and we see God's wisdom in that. In all that God is, the Bible says he is infinite. All his attributes, nothing is, there are no edges to who God is. He is infinite in his glory, infinite in his justice, infinite in his wisdom, infinite in his power. That's omnipotent, all-powerful. There's no edges to God's power. He's omniscient. He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He is all, he is everywhere at once. He is all-present everywhere at once the heavens declare the glory of God by declaring the infiniteness of God number one but number two creation speaks of God's loving care and his compassion we see that all around us in fact the other day I was sitting on our back porch and I love to watch the birds and and the rabbits and all the creatures in our back area and I saw a, uh, a mom robin with 
not a baby robin, I'd, I'd call it a teenage robin because it had the speckled breast, it hadn't yet gotten the red breast, but it was almost as big as mom. And so I'm watching, and so they're both on kind of like in, you know, maybe 10 feet apart, and teenage robin finds some kind of bug. I see it go down and come up with a, like a, it looked like a worm in its beak. But wouldn't you know, that, that bug just kind of popped out of its beak and fell to the ground and disappeared in the grass. And I thought for sure that teenage robin was going to go for a second try. He turns around, he starts running to mom, and, and he's chirping. And you could tell he's like, because I've had teenagers, feed me, feed me, I need food. That's a scene that's reproduced all around the world in a million different ways. God has built into most creatures, not some, but most creatures, this amazing love and compassion for their young ones. A compelling drive to care for their young. We as parents, as human parents, we have that built-in desire where we would lay down our lives for our children. We would do anything to care for them and protect them. That reflects the heart of God. As creator, God cares for his creation. He doesn't just care for man, although he does care for us amazingly, but he cares for that little bird. He feeds the sparrow. Psalm 36, 5 says, your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Like we are surrounded by the love of God and the faithfulness of God. And so by God's command, the sun comes up every morning and circles around and goes down. And that faithfulness is as it provides all we need to live is reflecting the faithfulness of God. So creation reflects the, God's loving care and compassion. But here is also true. Creation also speaks of the terror of God. That's not something we think about that much. But it speaks of the terror of God. Because nature at times, creation can be terrifying. I would not want to be out in space right now. Um, tornadoes. I grew up in the Midwest, and I, every time a cloud passed over the sun, I got sick to my stomach with fear. I had a tremendous fear of tornadoes as a kid because of their destructive power. Hurricanes, earthquakes, being in the middle of the ocean in a bad storm, terrifying. The brutal cold of Antarctica, the, the blazing heat and brutal cold of a desert. It's, it can be terrifying. Nature can be terrifying. Predators can be terrifying. In a poem Lord Tennyson wrote, I get this, Lord Tennyson wrote this after losing a beloved friend. This is a poem about grief. And he wrote this line, Nature is red in tooth and claw. It's bloody. Nature is bloody. That line became a favorite line among evolutionists such as Huxley and Darwin because their view of nature was just that. Just red in tooth and claw. Dispassionate, cold, cruel. But not cruel because it's just what nature is. Survival of the fittest. There is no compassion. There need be no mercy. That goes against nature. It is survival of the fittest. It was that demonic 
belief system that gave rise to Hitler and Nazi Germany with their Aryan, their idea of a superior Aryan race and the necessary extermination of the weak and the inferior. It all was birthed out of the evolutionist view of survival of the fittest. They did miss an important truth that Tennyson closed his poem with, and we'll get to that in a moment. And I believe they've got it almost all wrong, but they do get one thing right. Creation can be terrifying. And that also tells us something about God. Because while God is good and loving, he, God is not someone to be messed with. He is not someone to be trifled with. Some picture God as being the nicest being in the, in the universe who wouldn't hurt a fly. Just the grandfather rocking, laughing, chuckling. Some picture a God or actually forge a God who looks a lot like them. Everything I believe, God believes. Every opinion I have, God has that opinion. I almost fell. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> And it's amazing how God seems to see things the way I see it. Well, that's because we're forging a God of our own making. There is such a, and the Bible says in the last days, there will be people who have no fear of God. There is such a sense that, hey, I'm going to judge God. He's not going to judge me. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, verse 31. Revelation describes a time when God in, in the person of Jesus Christ returns to the earth and people will cry out for the things they normally are afraid of, for the rocks and the hills to fall upon them and crush them just to hide them from the terror of the brilliance of the holiness of Jesus Christ in that day. In other words, picture the most terrifying thing nature could throw at you, and it's dwarfed in the face of the terror of God. He is no one to be messed with. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And creation speaks that to us. But creation finally also speaks of God's beauty. There is such beauty around us. Beauty in a sunset, in a beautiful summer day, or a snow-capped visa, um, in a panoramic landscape, in the sound of songbirds. There's so much beauty, the night sky, and the beauty of nature can speak peace to a troubled heart and to a despairing soul. God infused beauty in his creation because God is beautiful. His holiness is beautiful. God is the master artist. He is the one who loves creativity, who loves, he doesn't just create what we barely need, but he infuses beauty. You ever hear a song that just, just permeates your soul with its beauty or just makes your heart want to sing? You know what? God is the master composer. If you've ever seen an artist paint a beautiful painting or any piece of work, it all reflects the artistry of God, a God who loves beauty and gave us so much beauty to enjoy around us. But let me say this. There's beauty in his creation only if we believe in the creator. 
in the beautiful creator. You remove God from the universe, it truly becomes cold and impersonal. If the universe is random and without meaning, then definitively so are our lives. Definitively. Because if there's no greater meaning in the universe, there is nothing you can attach your life to that has meaning. Everything we know, everything we accomplish, and everything we love is headed for the grave and oblivion, and it's like it never, ever existed. Everything. The saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, that's not a happy saying. That's a depressed saying of a soul that has no hope, saying you might as well party today because there ain't nothing to live for. It's a depressed saying. Eat, drink, and be merry. And that's, that's when people just live to live. They're just trying to forget their problems. They're just trying to get enough pleasure and food and this and that and recreation and all that to make life work. It's like, because tomorrow you're going to die. But deep inside, we know that's not the truth. We know that's not the end. The heavens don't declare the meaningless of life they declare the glory of God he is beautiful he is loving he is compassionate he is personal he is kind he is all those things so Lord Tennyson in his poem on grief mentioned nature being red of tooth and claw but remember he's grieving the loss of a dear loved friend and he writes and closes this poem by declaring that there is hope beyond the veil There is hope beyond the grave. That's where Tennyson landed. Darwin didn't get there. Our lives have eternal meaning. And I want to, that brings us to the next thing that God speaks. And that is that God speaks a specific revelation about himself through the Bible. I want to read verses 7 through 14. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. So when David writes of the law in this psalm, he's writing of the word of God, all that they had at that point. We now have the completed canon that contains all of the revelation that God in his wisdom has decided to give us, the authoritative revolution, a revelation of God. All that we need to know about God right now is in this word. And all that we need to know about salvation and how to live our lives are in this word that doesn't mean it's exhaustive it just means all that God in his wisdom knew we needed to know he put in his word God has spoken through his word with such beauty and clarity that David says it lights up the eyes it lights up the heart it brings understand oh I see it now reminds me of C.S. Lewis's quote which I love he says this he says I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it but because by it, 
I see everything else. The word of God enlightens our eyes and we begin to see things fall into place. Oh, this is what is good in life. This is what life is meant to be. This is our problem, folks. This is what truth is. God has communicated in his word to us as a, as a letter to us. And this word, this Bible, is more precious to us than anything in the world. More than silver and gold. You want silver and gold? You better get this. Because you'll be poor at the end of having silver and gold, but you get this and you're rich. We're going to talk more about the word of God as we go into Psalm 119 next week. But the word of God endures forever. And the most precious, specific revelation this Bible gives to us from Genesis to Revelation is about the Savior he would send, Jesus Christ. The Jews looked forward to their Messiah, the Anointed One. And Jesus said all the scriptures speak of him. God was speaking of the son he would send to save our souls from beginning to end. That's what this book is about. It's not a bunch of teachings. It's a story, a love story from God, communicating his intense love for us and his commitment to save us through Jesus Christ. So my last point this morning is this. God speaks a saving revelation about himself through Jesus, the word of God. In the opening words of the gospel of John, John refers to Jesus as the word. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things, he says, all creation, all those galaxies and stars and planets were created through him, and nothing was created apart from him. He's talking about Jesus, the word, the communication of God, the ultimate communication of God. And as the word, Jesus, lived among us, we saw in Jesus the heart of the Father. We saw what God is like. In Jesus' compassion for the sick, we saw the compassion the Father feels for the suffering. In his love for the lost, we see the Father's love for the lost. When Jesus reached out to the lonely, to the outcast, we see the Father reaching out to the lonely and the outcast as well. The word Jesus communicated perfectly. God the Father and the heart of the Father to this world. And the, dec the greatest declaration of the heart of God is found at the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Greatest demonstration of God's love for us was on the cross. Hebrews 12.23 reminds us that even the blood of Jesus speaks to us. The writer of Hebrews writes, You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
Remember Abel was killed by his, son, his brother Cain. And his blood cried out, vengeance, revenge me. Jesus' blood cries out a better word than vengeance. It cries out, mercy, forgive them. Mercy. I just want to remind us this morning that Jesus said he didn't come to condemn the world. He didn't come to, to shower condemnation on the world. He came to save the world. Jesus says those who believe in him are not condemned. Like on Judgment Day, those who believe in Jesus, and we sang so many beautiful songs today about that, we're not condemned. But then Jesus says something that I have sometimes pondered and wondered about. He said, those who do not believe in me are condemned already. And here's what it sounds like. It sounds like if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus, they're simply condemned for not believing. But I think Jesus is saying something far more complicated and something far deeper than that, that they're simply condemned for not believing. <clears throat> if a person refuses to believe in Jesus, the only way to escape condemnation, then I believe the Bible reveals to us they are condemned by a million things because they did not accept the only way to escape condemnation. They're not condemned for one thing. You didn't believe you're condemned. They're condemned by a million things because they didn't accept the one way to escape condemnation. And I want to close with an illustration that <clears throat> comes from the recent news. As you know, I know several weeks ago the world was transfixed as five people, including a father and son, went down in a submersible with the idea of... of sinking 12,500 feet down to the Titanic and then exploring the ship that fascinates so many people, including myself. <clears throat> on their way down, they lost contact. We know the story. As the search went on for days. <clears throat> but the reality was that their submersible was breached on the way down and it's really actually a mercy that they didn't spend days suffering down there. They were dead before they knew they were dead. And that's kind of a mercy, actually. But the pressure at the depth of the Titanic is roughly 6,000 pounds per square inch. 6,000 pounds per square inch. Once a vessel is breached, it will implode with violent and sudden force. The only safe place at that depth is to be in a vessel that can withstand the pressures and the dangers of that depth. If you get out of the vessel, you're dead. You're condemned already. You, you have, now why? Why? See, if I said, if you get out of that vessel, you're condemned already. You're dead already. You're going to say, well, that doesn't seem fair. There's a million ways you're going to die. Pick the way. 
the pressure will just, you're gone. But take away the pressure. You're not going to swim 12,500 feet up to get air. And the cold will freeze you in moments. And who knows, throw a shark or two in and you might get eaten. On I mean, you're just dead. You're just condemned immediately. If you're not in the safe vessel, you're dead. Period. A million ways, you're dead. Thousand reasons you will die once you leave a safe vessel at that depth. Our sin, the Bible says, is so deep, so fatal. God's righteous justice, so pure, so blazing, so weighty glory that we stand no more chance on judgment day than those five did of swimming to the surface on their own. No chance. No chance. The weight of God's glory. It's not going to be God's meanness that we're going to be frightened of on judgment day. It's going to be his goodness. It's going to be his purity. It's going to be the brilliance of his righteousness and justice. Ain't nobody going to be doing like some attorney thing where they're trying to, you know, win a, a, a not guilty plea from God. Our sin will undo us in a million ways on judgment day. The weight of God's glory is far greater upon our souls on that day than 6,000 pounds per square inch. And the only safe place to be on judgment day for us as sinners is in Christ. The only safe vessel is Christ. Because he is perfectly holy and righteous and just and Christ's holiness, his righteousness, as he lived this earth, he withstood all the temptations and he radiated the grace and love and wisdom and justice of God with the same outward force that God's force is going to meet. So he is the safe place. And when Jesus stands before the Father, God says, I love my son. And when we believe in Jesus, we are placed into Christ. And, Jesus, and God the Father says, and I love my children. And you are safe in him. But step out of him, bang, million reasons why. False religions are going to implode under the pressure of God's holiness. Sincere, misguided ideas about who God is will implode. Doing good and hope my good outweighs my bad. It's like dropping to 12,500 feet in a tin can. Just going to crumple up and implode. Our sins are many. They're varied. And in that sense, there are many reasons we are condemned before God. But there's only one safe place, Jesus. And so in that sense, if we're not in that safe place, the only safe place in all the universe, we are condemned already. But God so loved the world. Yeah, and you have my permission, if I'm still here 20 years from now preaching, you can kick me out, you know, but just usher me out the door. Life. Tell me it's time. Uh, let's Isn't turn to Psalm 119. I know that's so, a familiar it's such passage. A to be together. But wow. And uh, God we are so in our loved summary the world. in the Psalms series. Whoever believes in Jesus. And this morning, don't get nervous. The son God's 
will not perish, um, because you know, but have Psalm 119 life. is the longest psalm. God speaks a love in the letter Bible, to us in but creation. But I promise, an hour and a half, and I'm going to be done. to us in the Word, and there'll be food afterwards. The Bible. Here's and what we know: all, we don't know who wrote Psalm 119. Jesus Christ, communicating uh, sure. His love. But we and do his know this: they love the Word of, of God. They love the Bible. Um, love for God's word is really the theme of this song, and it's expressed in, in verse receive. 97. Oh, That's how I love question. your law. Let's pray together. I meditate on it all day long. While we're praying, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm containing 176 verses. But you may not know why. If you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, verses. there's a very I'm not saying you go to church or you don't go to church or read the Bible. You don't read the Bible. Verses. I'm very religious. I'm not Psalm 119, stick I'm with me now, is broken into 22 sections. One section for Are every letter in, Jesus in the Hebrew Christ, alphabet, and each section begins with the that, next chronological I encourage you to get into letter the of the alphabet. So in, in our him. alphabet, the first section he didn't come to condemn you. He came to save you. A, he came to rescue section, you. Letter B, he came right he loves through you. the entire alphabet. But more than that, so if that's you and you've never received each Jesus, section will you pray then with contains eight verses. Dear Jesus, and each of those eight verses I believe then in you. begins with that same letter. So and I ask you to please. And then eight Come into verses, my heart, starting with the letter A. And please place Second me. Second section, the letter B. In your heart. And eight verses. Save me from with my the letter sins. B, the Hebrew letter for B. Save me and from the judgment of God. Twenty-two times eight equals a hundred and Save me for relationship. So we have one hundred and seventy-six verses. Relationship. With we God. do not have time to go through all I'm those verses. I'm not going to try to earn it. Here's the great thing. I want to just I'm highlight not three things about back. Um, I loving God's it word from this psalm. And I'm going to jump around a little bit, but that's okay because this is not a sequential psalm me, where it builds sequentially. Uh, so we can pull what uh, Charles Bridges calls the pearls Amen. of independent pearls. And of Father, we just thank you for from this psalm, and we're going to pull just a few. How out you communicate with us, Lord? I'm going to be reading from the NIV. And as we come into Jesus morning, and we know Jesus, we learn to hear your voice better pearl, and better. The first truth we can learn a deeper and deeper relationship with God's you. Word is we can eternal, see your beauty as we spend in time heaven, in your Word. We can see your beauty as we look at creation. And, verse 96. and Lord, we can see your beauty. Your in Word, O oh Lord, Savior. is eternal. So beautiful. It stands Help firm. Us, Lord, in the heavens. Help us, Lord. Your faithfulness to hear and continues the love through letter. all you generations. You establish the earth and it endures. In Your Jesus laws name. to this Amen. day for all things serve you. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your, just the Holy Spirit to speak loud and clear to our hearts from your word. We thank you for the revelation Bible is to us about who you are, God, and also about the loving plan of redemption that you had in mind from the very beginning and culminating with our Savior Jesus Christ. Help our hearts to love and treasure this book that you have given us. Lord, if our Bibles are a bit dusty, let us recognize we're making a big mistake. And let's blow that dust off and get into them every day as we're able. Let's commit to it, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Here's why I wanted to start with this point that it is eternal, because we live in a temporary world. And so in this temporary world, God's word is permanent. It is firm in the heavens. It is fixed forever. The permanence of God's word represents the permanence of God's faithfulness. Everything around us, look around, everything is temporary. Except God's word and his faithfulness and his promises. They are forever. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So here's what God's word does. It gives us a fixed point by which we can guide our lives. In the nautical world, sailors use something that's called a sextant. And a sextant is a device that measures, and it's kind of a directional. Before we had GPS, it's a directional. And the way it works is it, it measures the angle between a fixed object, usually a celestial object, the sun or the north star at night, and you, you, you angle that with your horizon, and by the two, you are able to know where you are and guide yourself with amazing precision. We need that fixed point to guide our lives. We need a fixed point to know where to go. Studies have shown that if a person is blindfolded and put in a field and told to walk a straight line, that it's not long without knowing it, that person begins to curve and they begin to curve more and more. And so they've observed people and they've had them walk blindfolded for long distances and what happens is they begin to do loops and those loops get tighter and tighter and they think they're walking in a straight line but they're, they're actually beginning to curve around and around again in ever tightening circles. It feels, when we don't have a fixed point, like we're walking in a straight line, but we're zigzagging all over, and we're beginning to do loops. That's why we can get lost. You, you put a person in a dense forest without some ability to guide them, and not only will they get lost, but they very well may start to see the same area again and again. I always wondered why that would happen. They'd have that in shows, and it's like, hey, I think we've been here, because you loop. Some researchers believe that the loopy paths are because the walker, as they're walking, change ever so slightly without knowing it, their sense of what straight ahead is. And so they feel like this is straight ahead, but then they begin to change it without even knowing it, and that begins to accumulate those little deviations until they become circles but you give a fixed point reference that somebody can look at and now they can recalibrate to that reference point over and over again and stay on a straight line. What's true physically is true spiritually as well. We cannot know truth without a fixed point because if we don't have a fixed point and that fixed point is God's word what feels like straight, what feels like true is going to begin to get lost and loop in on itself. 
And we're seeing that happen in surprising ways today. I want to I want to just mention, as people reject the fixed point of absolute truth, as people reject that, they hitch their truth on other things that are not fixed points. And they feel, we feel, when we do that, like we're going straight, but we're not. We will begin to loop. And so we're seeing people hitch what they believe is true to what's trending culturally what's acceptable socially. And we're getting lost in loops of contradiction and irrationality. As someone once said, you can deny reality, but you can't deny the consequences of denying reality. One example we see is this whole conversation about gender fluidity. It's all around us right now. Our kids are hearing it all all the time. That gender is fluid based on what a person identifies as. And as as we unhitch gender from biological, the fixed point of biological science and the fixed point of God's word, God created us male and female, we are beginning to do verbal loop-de-loops that no one could have predicted just a few short years ago. For the first time in human history, it is possible for a man to be pregnant. First time in human history. How did that happen? An intelligent, highly educated Supreme Court nominee couldn't answer this question, what is a woman? When we say a man who identifies as a woman is a woman, we're left with biological males who, as males, were mediocre in athletics, but in women's sports are easily breaking long-held sports uh, uh, records. Riley Gaines, I'm sure you've heard of her, was set to speak at the San Francisco State University. She was hit twice by a man in a dress in the name of women's rights. I mean, we're talking loop-de-loops. A man hits a woman in the name of women's rights. Now, I I I wanna say something to us, that as Christians, we should fight for the rights and the protection of the trans community. We absolutely should. I cringe when I hear Christians speak in a demeaning or disrespectful way about people who are gay or trans or, or anything. Amen. I cringe. You don't have to believe that gender is fluid in order to love someone who believes that gender is fluid. Amen? Amen. And to share the good news with them. So I think, I think that... While we hold to a fixed point of what we believe is true, we hold on to it with love and compassion for those who don't believe that. And we, we don't speak snarky, we don't speak sarcastic, we don't speak dismay, we respect, we love, we care, we truly, we will fight for them. If somebody's attacking somebody, I don't care what they are, we fight for them, amen? We stand up for them, but we don't agree with what they're 
believing. There's a lot of confusion. And right now the world is in, and that's just one example, a loop-de-loop of confusion. And it needs right now Christians, Jesus said you are the light of the world, it needs Christians who lovingly and courageously point to the fixed word of point of God's word, which stands firm in the heavens. We also need that fixed point as we navigate our personal horizons. We all have personal horizons, and those horizons change. Our season of life changes. What we see on the horizon, it doesn't stay the same. It changes. If you have young kids, you know your, your horizon right now is full of dirty diapers and, and constant demand. Um, if your kids are older, that horizon's different. If you don't have kids or your kids are, are grown, your horizon looks very different. After 32 years of kids living in our home, Janice and I are on the cusp of the empty nest. Our horizon is changing. But that's true all over the place. The person applying for their very first job has a different horizon than the guy or the gal that's been working in the same job for 20 years. Different horizon. A single person has a different horizon than a married person. College educated, a different horizon than a tradesman. Our horizons look different. For young people, for young people, the horizon might be full of what your peers think about you. That's all you see on the horizon. What do my peers think of me? Do they accept me? Do they think well of me? Do they, I, I, I don't want to be laughed at. And being accepted can feel, I know I was that age once, a long time ago. It can feel like the most important thing in the world. What you cannot see right now is that in 10 years, most of the people in your life right now will not be in your life as far as friends in school and peers, and you will not care what they thought about you. Horizons change, and they're meant to look different. We're all in different places. But here's the beautiful thing about God's word. It gives us all a fixed point. So just like that sextant, there's my horizon, there's the fixed point. We look at our horizon, but we look at the fixed point, and that guides us so we don't get lost or wander aimlessly in circles. So we don't think we're walking in truth when we're really being deceived. We take our horizon into consideration, but we don't guide our lives by our horizons. You don't guide a ship by, I think I saw that wave before, head towards that wave. All waves look the same. I think I saw that tree before. You guide it by a fixed point. God's word, firmly fixed in heaven. The second point is actually kind of related to it that I want to draw out from this. And that God's word is a lamp for our feet. Verse 105 he writes this, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. You might think, isn't that the same thing you just said? Well, it's, it's a little different. God's word fixed in heaven gives us this objective truth point that gives us an unchanging reference point in life. But verse 105 tells us God's word is not just this distant fixed point. It's also a nearby lamp to guide our steps. A lamp guides our lives a little differently than a star. A fixed point helps us walk in truth, walk a straight line, navigate the challenges of life by holding on to something objectively true. When the horizon of our culture and social ideologies keep changing, but a lamp lights our next step, keeping us from stumbling 
keeping us from walking into danger. Think of it this way. God's truth is big and massive and unchanging, but his truth also comes close to us to help us navigate the challenges in life. Whatever challenge, whatever decisions, whatever choices, whatever issues you are dealing with in life, God's word is a lamp for your feet. We need both, the fixed and the lamp. Here's a couple ways that Psalm 119 tells us God's word is a lamp. When we're tempted to sin, God's word lights up the path of purity. Verse 9. I told you I was jumping around a little bit. Verse 9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word protects us from taking that step into impurity that might feel good today, but destroys our lives tomorrow. God's word hidden in our hearts. And by the way, that's another important reason why we should know the word of God. We want to hide the word of God. Somebody might say, well, I've got God's word hidden. I just don't know where in the house it is. That's not what this is talking about. God's word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against. See, when your God's word is hidden in your heart, you are able to discern, uh-uh, okay, that's, that's not right. But if you don't know God's word, you're not going to have that discernment. And we can go down dangerous paths without knowing it. Impurity, sin, immorality. This week on Tuesday... Went to put the shower on, and we had no hot water. I went downstairs, and after looking at our hot water heater for an embarrassingly long amount of time, trying to figure out what was wrong with it, I looked at the bottom, and I saw a bunch of water underneath it. it took me a while to get to that point. And long story short, um, it had sprung an irreparable leak on the inside of the tank couldn't see it. The tank is fairly new. We bought it four years ago. On the outside, it looked perfect. It looked beautiful. It was working perfectly. Perfectly. But on scene, in the inner tank, sediment and impurities started to accumulate, build up, and began to eat and rot away at the tank from the inside out. It was fine until it wasn't. That's what's impurity. That's what immorality. That's what sin does. Sin's an impurity that eats away at us from the inside out. I think nobody knows. Not hurting anybody. And you know what? I've been doing this sin and I'm okay and everything's fine. And it will be fine and you will look good and everything will be great until it doesn't. But even when it looks good on the outside, on the inside, our conscience is compromised. Guilt eats away at us. Shame gnaws at us. Fear of being found out causes us to begin to spin webs of deceit. We begin to become two or three people, depending on where we are. 
And it all goes on in the inside where no one can see until the corrosion works its way through, and it will eventually, and it leaks outside. God's word's a lamp. Don't take that first step. When you do take that step, God's word is hidden in my heart. Confess the sin to the Lord, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's walking in the light. That's cleaning out the tank, which I'm going to do. By the way, our tank was under warranty. And uh, we're going we're gonna to clean it once a year now, flush it out. So we need to do that with our hearts. God's word is a lamp. It, it, hidden in our hearts, it helps flush our hearts out. The second way that, uh, that God's word is a lamp to us is uh, it actually broadens our understanding. Verse 32, I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. I love this. I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but I think this is so amazing because a lot of times people think that, you know, following the Bible, believing the Bible just narrows your life. You're very narrow-minded, you know, and, you, you know, you just, you got to open your mind up and, you, you know, you, you're, you're so tight and you, you can't live and, you, you know, you can't have fun and all this because you believe the Bible. And it's like, no, just actually the opposite is true. The opposite is true. It sets us free to run in life. Sin doesn't set you free. It chains you. You're not free when you're chained to sin. You're not free when you're chained to ideologies that give no hope. But you can party. You can, you can do it up today with no concern, but you have no hope. That's not freedom. That's not freedom. I run in the path of your commands. Jesus says, hey, go through the narrow gate, and then you're going to find wide and abundant pasture. Yes, there's a narrow gate into this. It's Jesus Christ and believing in him. But then you find wide pasture. Jesus didn't come to say, I came to give you a stingy little life. He said, I came to give you abundant life, a full life, where you are free to live life the way it was meant to be lived. And I'm not here to, to make you close-minded so you can't. Absolutely, there are small-minded Christians. But it's not the Bible that makes them that way. It's, it's traditions and religiosity and self-righteousness that causes a believer's mind to collapse in on itself and become really small-minded. The Bible broadens our understanding of life and what's really going on by giving us insight into human nature. We understand ourselves better. We understand life better. When you understand how something works, you can use it better. When you understand an instrument, we went to see a band last night, a Fleetwood Mac cover band, and they were just awesome. Here's a, there, here's a principle I want to tell you about. The guitar player was amazing. I'm like, oh. You can get so good if you devote yourself to it. But here's what that, you know what that looked like for him? It didn't look like freedom. It looked like playing discipline every day, hours and hours and hours of playing. While other people were outside playing games, tossing the football, you know, watching TV, gaming. He was playing the guitar, playing the same thing over and over again, learning, learning, learning. Okay. But you know what he has freedom to do? Get up and play songs without having to think and look at the music like I have to. You just play free as possible. Discipline leads to greater freedom in life. That, that understanding of what is true doesn't restrict you. It, it keeps you from things that bind you. 
Amen? Does that make sense? It keeps us from bound lives, and the most difficult chain to break is doing exactly what you want to do. That is the greatest prison because our flesh goes in all the wrong directions and we end up miserable. The Bible broadens our understanding insight into human nature. It gives us wisdom and counsel on finances. It navigates us through the deep valleys, keeps us grounded when we're on the high mountains. God's word teaches us how to live a well-crafted life. It makes us wise unto salvation. And that brings me to the last point, and I'm going to be quick with this, but this is super important. God's word promises God's unfailing love and salvation to those who trust in his word. Verse 41 and verse 42. Now, the psalmist says, Now may your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation, according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. According to your promise, your salvation, God never has and never will break a promise. His promises are fixed eternally in heaven. So when God promises us his unfailing love, we can stand on that. We can take it to the bank. When God promises salvation to all those who call upon his name, all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a promise we can stand on. The greatest promises in the Bible are promises of salvation because that's what we need more than anything else. We need to be rescued, and that's why Jesus came. But here's a wonderful thing about salvation and about God's promises. They're not just for on the other side of eternity. Jesus came to save us for eternity, but also to save us here and now. John's gospel in particular represents or presents salvation not as something in the future, but something that is now. Jesus saves us now. Jesus frees us from the power of sin now. Jesus washes away condemnation and guilt and shame now. We are saved now. And then on that day, our salvation will be gloriously realized as Jesus ushers us into his eternal kingdom and into eternal life, and we fall on our knees in grateful praise to the Savior who saved us. Salvation, the promise. I find it interesting the psalmist is writing this while facing some kind of taunting. He says, then I can answer anyone who taunts me. Salvation is his answer. There are people taunting him, mocking, belittling him, but he knows he can trust God's promise to answer the taunt, taunters, those who are taunting him. And as you read through this psalm, and so many of the psalms, you see that the psalmist, he's going through ups and downs. Life is, has its bumps and its bruises. His life isn't trouble-free. There are powerful people plotting against him. There are people digging pits for him to fall into. 
There are people telling lies in order to smear his good name. At times, he says, I feel like my soul is clinging to the dust. But you know what else he's clinging to? With one hand, he might be clinging to the dust. But with the other hand, he's clinging to the promises of God. The Bible doesn't promise that God exempts us from trials. In fact, just the opposite. It promises that life will be hard sometimes. People will come against us. Circumstances will come against us, try to knock us down, try to steal our hope. And in those moments, we might be clinging to the dust, but brothers and sisters, cling also to the word of God. Cling also to the promises of God. If you've been in that place where your heart is heavy and, and, and in sorrow, but there's a part of you holding on to this word, you know that that can be one of the sweetest places there is. We are trusting in God's unfailing love. Let's go to our faithful God in prayer. Jesus, the name Jesus means the Lord is our salvation. He came to save us. He is our Savior. If you don't know him as your Savior, I urge you to come and believe upon him even this day. To not hold back, not wait, not delay. And he will give you abundant life, not just then when you die, but now and then. So I urge you to trust in him and all of us. Let us trust in God's word and his promises. Let's pray. Father, we live in such a temporary world. Everything is passing. Everything is changing. We are changing. And we are temporary, at least in these frames. The season of life we're in, the challenges we face, the blessings we enjoy, everything is temporary. But you are not, Lord, and your word is not. Thank you for anchoring us to something that's immovable, something we can truly stand upon, we can build our lives upon. Now, Father, what I pray is that as we absorb this, these truths from this beautiful psalm, I pray, Lord, that you will rekindle in the heart of each of us a commitment and a, and a desire to be in your word. Lord, I pray that that person who's hidden your word on their shelf will take that word off the shelf and begin to open it and to make time every day to read that you might give them insight, that your promises might strengthen their faith, that they might see Jesus on every page. And that, Lord, that our, our souls are fed and anchored and guided by your word. Lord, we say with the psalmist, oh, how we love your word. Help us to love it more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I hope you all can stay for the meal. You know what? We're all here right now. Well, I, don't, I know this kind of sounds simply because we just prayed, but let's just pray for the food. Then we're done, right? Then we can get the food. We can get the barbecue going, and we, we can go for it. Amen.
All right, let's say, Father, we just pray you bless the food, the fellowship, the games, the fun, everything we do, we commit to. Please keep the weather good. Um, and thank you again for the, the, the joy of being a part of a local church and family of God, community of faith. We thank you, Lord. Bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hope you can stay for it. If you can't, God bless. Have a good week.